Welcome back to Real Talk Torah, courtesy of the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg. I'm Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg, and you just entered the database. And it's been a while since we've been here on Real Talk Torah, so I'm glad to be back looking into and speaking about interesting shear topics. And I do have to say, uh, the, uh, today's shear is not going to be a typical one, but it is something that I think is definitely uh, fascinating and something that's worth our time and attention. And this is true whether or not you follow politics or how closely you follow politics, or even if it's something that you you feel you have no connection to, it is something that is relevant to all of us. And that is because it's one of the unfortunate realities of life, the reality of politics and propaganda. And I wanted to focus on different scenarios in Tanakh where we do find some politics and propaganda and talk a little bit about what we can learn from this concept. We've had different, uh, if you want to call them shiurim, or you can just call them uh, talks or discussions about the role of politics in the life of a Jew. We've spoken about that Truma Sadeshin that talks about talking about uh, politics on Shabbos. There, the Truma Sadeshin refers to it as Malachim and Melchamos, wars and kings, um, or the kings and wars, if we're going in the right order. And it is something that, again, it's, it's a part of our lives, right? The, you could think of maybe the politics um, as the drama that surrounds it. But politics is really more than just drama. There, are, there, you know, there, there, there is a, a, a chachma to politics. And you know, I'm not really here to give um, you know, a, a, a talk on political science but it is important to know that these things exist and how they exist in the Torah. And obviously, um, you know, for those listening recently after this uh, recording is posted, um, I, you know, I chose to do this topic um, in, in light of this week's Parsha, Parsha's Korach, which I would say is perhaps one of the main headquarters of politics in Torah. And, and, I'll, and I'll preface by saying that we are not going to be elaborating on American politics per se, but I would definitely argue that there are plenty of places in Torah that will overlap with political positions. And again, I'm not here to, to discuss uh, Democrat, Republican, um, Democrat, Socialist, um, you know, again, you, you do find some of that in Torah, but it was a very different time. You know, it was a time with monarchies, obviously, and um, the, the breakdown of leadership is something that's very, very different. And anyone who wants to can make arguments about how, you know, you can you can get really creative. Um, you know, you see some really creative people nowadays coming up with political arguments, even based um, based on Torah concepts or Torah Hashkafa, and you can really back up anything you want to nowadays. You can almost come up with, a, you know, if, if, if you use all the right words and you have the right presentation, you can uh, basically support anything. Um, and so that's, that's, why, that's not exactly what we're going to talk about. What I do want to talk about is how politics and propaganda were used in the times of Torah and Tanakh at large, and speak a little bit about what we can learn from that, and perhaps in a certain vein, be able to apply it to nowadays. And, um, and to, to glean something from that aspect of Torah, because this, this is an area, as it is an area of real life, 
It is an area of Torah, which is also obviously real life. And it's something that, again, affects us all the time, affects us even if we are aware of it or not. And that is because politics and really um, the culture, certainly, and you know those two are in many ways intertwined, they, they affect policy, and they don't only affect policy, but they affect public opinion. And because they affect public opinion, um, whether or not your, your mind and heart is actually governed by Torah Hashkafa, you can be swayed, and it's important to recognize how these things um, affect us all the time. So certainly for the case of Parshas Korach, very, very clear and obvious um, political discussion takes place when Korach um, starts basically a campaign and he recruits leaders, he gets endorsed by leaders, and he challenges, he challenges Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron Cohen uh, for their roles. The roles as, as, as um, you know, Nesim, as Kohanim, right? So Aaron as the Kohen, Moshe Rabbeinu as the leader Nasi of Klal Yisrael. And the, he, he, makes, he makes arguments. The, he basically he opens up a debate. And we even find um, here, we, um, we, know we, we, we find shades maybe of, of the communist aspect, at least in terms of, of Kedusha and um, the, uh, um, the allocation of roles in Kedusha, Right, Kulana Kedoshim, we're all holy, so why Why do you place yourself above everyone else? And so Korach has this kind of let's share let's share the spiritual wealth with everybody. And you know, you think this is a conversation that starts and ends with Korach, but it really isn't. It's it's something that has existed before Korach, it's something that certainly has existed after Korach, it still exists today in other forms. You don't really, you know, we um, because you know we, we we don't have such a solid institution of Kahuna and Levia today. There there are some sechosim that Kohanim get nowadays, um, few that Leviim get nowadays, but it's obviously not what it was then. And if the institution was the same, I'm sure you would have um, people fighting over the institutions even today, as as crazy as that sounds, because there are plenty of things that we don't learn from. Um, you, not, you do not only have Korach, but you have Dasan and Aviram, who are clearly the the corrupt media, if you will, of of the of of, of this of this particular of this particular uh, scene. You know, they, they 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 have a way about presenting their their arguments. Something that we'll speak about um, later this week in Parsha Panorama. But you see how they speak, talking about how Moshe Rabbeinu um, took them out of the land flowing with milk and honey. And this is something that you see very frequently in in media, the 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 verbiage, the rhetoric, where they specifically took a phrase that Moshe Rabbeinu most likely had used with them. Certainly Hashem used it. I'm sure you could find places earlier in the Chumash when Moshe Rabbeinu referred to Eretz Yisrael as the land flowing with milk and honey. And they say, you took us out of the land flowing with milk and honey, referring to Mitzrayim. And they basically, they, they proceed to call Moshe Rabbeinu a failure. And it, what's really fascinating is that this particular argument, if you think about it, does not have much to do with who should be the Kohen. Right? It, you know, it doesn't really make sense. But we're, um, um, something that, that we'll notice 
Um, and this I heard from my brother who heard a share, I believe it was from Rav Moshe Tarragon, um, talking about how, if you think about it, the thing that Korach wanted had really no shaykhs and no relevance to what Dustin and Raviram wanted. You, know, you have the B'nai Ruven on the one hand, you have a bunch of the B'nai Levi fighting, arguing for different things, and th- what was, what's, what's interesting is that it seems that they all want the same thing. They all want the leadership. And the only thing that they can seemingly agree on is that Moshe Rabbeinu should not have it. And, and that Aaron shouldn't have it. And who's going for what? Like, do the Bechorim, do the Bnei Ruvain want to be in charge? Do the Bnei Levi want to be in charge? And all of a sudden, they form a coalition against Moshe and Aaron. Meanwhile, none of them, are, none of them can all get the same role that they want. But this is kind of how, how um, politics works, right? You have a common enemy. And even if, uh, even if you can't all win, but you can knock down the top dog, so what you're going to do is you're going you're gonna to offend and you're going to fight, even alongside someone who really tomorrow can easily be your enemy, but right now you have a, you have a common enemy. And you find this in politics, too, in terms of, and this is what, um, what, what Rav Targan was speaking about in terms of intersectionality. You know, you find that as well. You, you might have two intersectional groups that really have no shaykhs to each other, and maybe in their own hashkafa, you find this. You know, for example, uh, you know, I mean, again, this is something that I didn't want to elaborate as much on, but I'll just throw it out there. You know, you have um, Palestinians who have certain um, sympathies from certain people, and even though the same people will be very intolerant about other kinds of groups um, of, of people, and also, you know, there'll, there'll be two different groups, let's say, that, that'll have sympathies from a certain um, political sects. And yet, those, uh, within the intersectional groups, there's hatred among them, but people will get behind them and almost act as if they're a coalition, even though they have nothing to do with each other, and given the chance, they would destroy each other. But they are all willing to, to fight the common enemy. Let's say the common enemy is Israel, or let's say the common enemy is someone someone just on on the other side of the political spectrum so the, the point is that they you know we, they all find something that they can rally around and later this week in Parsha Panorama we're going to talk about the timing of Korach's rebellion there is an achlokus when that took place but what we see is the political brilliance of what Korach tried doing and what I really wanted to bring out is that you know if you think about it just some, and something to think about right now as you think about Parsha's Korach so Korach, again, very clearly putting together a political campaign against Moshe and Aaron. The, the timing at first glance is strange because this is not the, you know, Parsha's Korach is not the first point in time where we, you know, assuming that it's in chronological order, it's placed exactly where it belongs, like the Ramban says, assuming it is right where it belongs, this is not the first time that Moshe Benu became the leader, and this is not the first time that Aaron became the Kohen Gadol. So it makes you wonder, why Korach only just now is starting this, this uh, campaign? Why did he only launch his campaign at that t- point in time? So that's something to think about. And obviously, even if it's not the case, that, that, it was in, that maybe if it wasn't in chronological order, so another question to consider is maybe why that's in Parshas Bamidbar, or, or Sefer Bamidbar, right where it is, between Shlach and Chukas. That would be more of a Parsha Panorama um, question, um, especially considering the, um, I mean, a chronology is always a safe bet if it's, it's if it's right where it belongs, even though it's not a full answer. But it's, uh, you know that that would be an easier answer to that question. 
But, um, but uh, what, I, what I would focus on, at least from the political aspect, assuming it's in chronological order, it's very, very important to understand why Korach's rebellion only started then. And it has everything to do with politics. It has everything to do with opportunism. It has everything to do with using the right kinds of uh, political tools, the propaganda that you have at your disposal. Because right, propaganda is a very big thing. Propaganda, you know, in politics in the world, it's um, it usually refers to the the um, it refers to a certain kind of rhetoric, and it refers to a certain you know it refers to talking points. It refers to the the, the those verbal tools that you can use, um, different points that you can use um, that you you speak these points and. They might be vague, right? So referring to the land flowing with milk and honey, it was just a word choice by Dawson and Aviram, but it was a poignant word choice. You know, they were trying to almost say, in Moshe Rabbeinu, you never had a plan. You know, you, um, you, you took us from the land flowing with milk and honey, not, the land, uh, uh, not to the land flowing with milk and honey. You know, they, they, they used that word choice to almost say that, Liam Oshabeno, the, the plan A, the, the, your, your, your plan A is not as good as what, what we had going. Um, or, or your plan B, let's say, if our plan A was to be in Mitzrayim. So, you know, the propaganda points are, the, are you know, the, those things that you're going to use at your disposal, things that you're just going to say because it has a good ring to it and it'll work and it supports your political agenda, most importantly. So where do we see other examples of this? I think there are countless examples. And if you, uh, you, know, if you, if you could think of other examples, please reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data, the base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. If there are any... Uh, uh, you know, um, aspects of politics and propaganda that, that you think were noteworthy that I did not mention, or if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the future. So definitely, um, you know, I'm happy to give you a future shout-out, or at least consider your ideas, whether or not you want the shout-out in, in future podcasts, future shirim, and it's also the place if you want to reach out and give a donation for the Harbatsis Torah that we do here. So please um, um, don't hesitate. Reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. But just to give you some other examples of, of the use of politics and propaganda, one, uh, one, one scene is the scene uh, in Malachim Aleph of Adoniyahu, who was one of the uh, sons of David HaMelech. And we see very clearly what he was trying to do and why it mattered, how he did it. In the very first parak of Malachim Aleph, so we have David HaMelech is really old, he's not really so active anymore in terms of his leadership as king, and then we have his son, Adoniyahu, or Adoniyah ben Chages, and it says, Misnaselim, or he raised himself up, saying, Aniem loch vayas He says, I'm going to be the king. And he, he set up for himself horses and things like that um, and chariots and people to run before him. Now, it seems like it's not that impactful. You know, well, maybe the horses and the prayer, the fanfare is pretty helpful. But just the very fact that he decided to say that I'm going to be the king and therefore what? But apparently that matters because when you go around saying something, if you state a lie and you and you, st- you state it loudly enough and you get other people to say it, so the public opinion becomes just that. You know, this was true in times of World War II, in times of of the Holocaust. Um, you know, Hitler, Yemachshem of Zichro, and his lies. You know, you you just keep on saying the right lies, 
And it's, it's interesting, we have the Lashon of, 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 of Misnase, the same Lashon that Korach uses about Moshe, you know, Madoa Tisnasu, why do you raise yourself up? But that's exactly what Adoniyahu did. Now, we know that Adoniyahu, you know, we the readers and the learners of the Navi, we know that Adoniyahu was definitely not in line to win the throne. And I think it's also important to mention that Adoniyahu did not do this um, without getting endorsements from other people. So he got some really top names to support him. It's like Yohav ben, Sur- ben Surya, Mavia um, Sarakoin, and they, you know, so they, they, they insisted on following him. We know that there are a couple of big names that did not follow him. And, uh, but, the, but the point is that he just went around, decided that he was going to be the king, and he just, was, just started telling everybody that. And all of a sudden, that became the political opinion. That was, that, that, that was the public opinion. And why, now why does that matter? Like, why, why does that matter that everyone thinks he's going to be the king? Even though, yes, we know Shlomo HaMelech is the heir to the throne. We know this is everything that David HaMelech planned. But why does it matter that people think that, that, that Adonia is going to be the king? Like, who cares? So they're wrong. But the answer is that apparently the public opinion does sway things. Because if everyone is saying something, then it's very hard to go against the current. And, you know, when, when people get up and they speak, when they protest, when they, when they make their voices heard. So if everyone's saying, you know, all hail Adonio, that Adonio should, you know, should, uh, you know the, the long live the king, long live Adonio. So then it's very hard to go against that. And when David Melch is not around and everyone thinks that this is the king, so... What is a king without his supporters, right? So the base, the political base, matters. And if they're the voices that are going to be the voices that are heard, so you know, they, they might be able to overrun and overthrow the real kingdom because, of course, Adonio is the king. He's the great leader. He's the one that we should be supporting, right? So you know, this, um, we have discussion in the Gemara about... Using your voice in terms of when um, when a person when we when it's biado limchos when you're able to protest something that's uh, that, that's not that's inappropriate. So there is a concept of making your voice heard, and when you should say something, whether or not you're going to sway people. But the public opinion is something that actually matters. If everyone thinks something, so even if they're all wrong, they can still. You know they they can still get a result that they want, and sometimes there will be there will be political leaders that are not strong enough to uh, to go against that current. So we have you know even again even if they're wrong, we have the case with Shal Hamelach, where Shal Hamelach was in fact swayed by public opinion. He did not do the right thing, you know, on more than one occasion. Because the public wanted one thing. So, for example, when it came to offering the karbanas before Shmuel, ha- Shmuel Hanavi arrived, so he was swayed by the public. And you know, so you'll have some people in governing positions where they, you know, they're not strong enough. And the truth is, at the very end of the day, they, they, these individuals, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, political leaders would be nothing without their supporters. So, for example, there are many times in in Chumash where the Torah refers to that which was done to Paro, Vichalavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavodavod
all the wonders and miracles, right? The um, the uh, the or the signs and wonders that Hashem sent against so to Paro and to all of his servants. Fine, and I think there's one earlier in the Chumash. Yes, at the end of Kisavo Perak Chavtes, we have in Pesach Aleph. So the same exact phraseology. And the question is, you know, why do we focus so much on the, the, the Avada of, okay, yes, things happen to them, but the answer is that Paro could have not accomplished anything if he, was, if he did not have a base who would eventually support him in, in his cause. Right, the king would be nothing without his supporters. What's really interesting is you find the reverse too. The, you know, it's not just about the effects of the public, but we actually find the, the the reverse, the effects of the political leader himself and and his appeal. Right, so there's actually a Ramban that talks about this with regards to Paro and the Havan Ischak Malo. Let's be wise with them. That the Ramban points out that Paro, um, on his own. Yes, you know, he couldn't have just gotten it done. He did need the people. But the people who, who, what kind of people would be so sick as to agree with things like infanticide and, you know, the, the, the genocide um, that, 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 that emerges from such intense xenophobia? Right, if we can you know, use that term, it was, you know, this was a xenophobia that was directed specifically at Klal Yisrael. But he, the, he couldn't just do it in one shot. He had to get people used to the idea by talking about it, by talking, by demonizing Klal Yisrael, saying you know um, terrible things about them, making them the enemy, making them the bad guy, and then eventually dehumanizing them to the point that infanticide, throwing a child in the water, which is something that we couldn't imagine, you know, and it would be so so commonplace, and it became commonplace after he spoke about it long enough and convinced the people, conniving and 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 deceiving them with just rhetoric, things that he would say, just t- keep on telling the lies, and then it, then it becomes true, and you know, it's the kind of thing that you know, with without giving um, a most explicit uh, political opinion on abortion, but just a basic, uh, just to understand the the transition over the years, right, abortion was something that used to not be, to barely be talked about. You know, you couldn't stomach having a conversation about it. But eventually, you know, we get used to it, you talk about it, you talk about it more, you talk about it more. And Rechaim Shmulavitz talks about this in Sichlas Musa regarding the Midas Histaglus, which means the Midah of adaptation or accommodation, where eventually you learn to accommodate something, right? When, you, when you're sitting in the dark and then someone turns on the lights, ah, it's really bright, I can't see. But when, uh, but when you get used to it, little by little, right, so if, if someone, or the opposite, if someone just shuts the lights off, it's really hard to see. But if you, but if you sit in the dark for a little bit, then you, it gets easier to see in the dark. You get used to it. And you get used to really disgusting things, too. So, and, you know, obviously there are cases where, where, where halacha acknowledges the appropriateness of an abortion. Um, and, you know, obviously those cases are limited. And as a rule, you know, it, it, would, it would be the exception to the rule, at least from a Torah perspective. But this is something that we didn't used to talk about. Uh, but, and, you know, even in Paro's times, you couldn't just talk about it. He had to ease people into it. And then once you ease people into it, using the tools of politics, you're able to get a following behind some of even the most disgusting things. And there's obviously what to learn from that as well. Any more examples that I had on my list? 
So, you know, if you want to see some interesting um, stuff about taxes, so we also find in Malachim Aleph with Rechavam. This is in Parakyud Bays of Malachim Aleph, where Rechavam, the son of Shlomo HaMelech, this is just before the Malchus Beisavah gets split between him and Yeravam. Now the question is, how exactly did Rechavam lose his base? Well, a big part of it was taxes, and again, not a discussion about how taxes should play a role nowadays, but the, uh, but the point is that Rechavim had two groups of people that he spoke to. He spoke to his yes-men, his, uh, his, his childhood friends, and then he spoke to his advisors. His advisors recommended easing up on the taxes. His childhood friends just, uh, just uh, prompted him to intensify the taxes. And, the, and because of this, you know, sometimes you do something to people enough that they don't like, and then they'll eventually leave your side. And what Adoniyahu was trying to make happen essentially happened with Yeravim when the Malchus was in fact split and, and Yeravim was able to gain a following. However, you know, we'll see that Yeravim, um, if, you, if you learn the Navi through, Yeravim, who could have had the potential of being a king in his own right, to have an eternal positive legacy of, ser- of people serving Hashem, he was given that promise by Achil Hashiloni, um, another Navi, so Yeravim was told that he, he could have had an eternal legacy as, as, as a Melech B'Yisrael, um, which would have been, again, a positive one. But because he was afraid of losing the base, he did some really debased things, um, at least in the, in the realm of Ruchnius, and you know, going as far as, as recreating the Egel Hazav. But had he done everything right, you know, and he, if he just did things not out of the fear of losing his political base, he also would have succeeded. Um, you know, the very and, and he, he realized he only won his base because he was um, into policies that were um, that were favorable to the people. Policies unlike Rechavim's policies. Uh, another another scenario that we find a very big one is in Megillus Esther. Right, politics you know seems to rule the show where the Yad Hashem at first glance is not there, but obviously we know is there. But uh, politics played a big role in deciding things. So, for example, um, the the maneuvering and the and the machinations of of Mordechai and Esther, how um, it, it was very important. For example, for Mordechai just to be um, uh, paraded on the horse, very similar to Adonia. Uh, people looking at him and saying, oh, look, this is the man that the king w- wants to honor. Why, why really is that important? What does that do for the story? That the tzaddik wins and the Russia loses? That the Russia has to you know, parade him on the horse? No, but it's about the public opinion. You know, the um, um, intensifying and uplifting the morale of the people who, until that point, the public opinion was that these people deserve to die. Right? And everyone knew that Mordechai was the Jew. And, and yet every, and, you know, there were letters going out saying that the Bnei Yisrael were going to be, um, were, were going to be uh, massacred by, by the people of Shushan. And yet, what, do we, you know, what, what happened? The, the reversal just came literally from letters saying that they're allowed to defend themselves. Why does that matter? It shows that coming from the top down, there's some kind of a support. And these things which affect public opinion were things that, that they changed the morale, they changed the trajectory of the entire story, and what this, what, what, what all of this, I think, demonstrates is a lot of different things. How, whether or not it's the MS or it's Sheker, people saying things and people thinking things creates realities. Alpi Teva, there's a basic Hishtadlis that comes with political maneuvering. 
and you know it often takes the Yad Hashem to reverse the course of those things, but where Yad Hashem is working in the background and we are working with Hashdadlus, it's important to know, you know, to to know how tactful people can be to be able to reverse it. Um, it's important to have a good presentation, to be able to defend your argument. Sometimes, perhaps even using um, people's emotions when necessary. You know, for someone who's a Rebbe or for someone who's a Rav, any really any kind of job where you interact with people, if you're a teacher or if you're or, um, really if you're a comedian, if you're an entertainer, anything. Um, you're trying to defend an argument, you know, you, you do need the emotional appeal. You do need to come from a place that's going uh, to speak to the people, to be able to deliver the subject matter, whatever it is. And that's, you know, for the sake of Emmas, to get the point across, even if you're going to have to go in a roundabout way, but that's actually what politics is. And it's not just politics, it's life. And the reason why I think it's important that natural hashtadlis means that you have to, you know, you have to have the tact, you have to know how to get the point across. This is a, just, you know, um, alpiteva, strategies for life, but also very important to recognize the difference between MS and Sheker, and that just because one lie is perpetuated doesn't make it actually true, even if people think it is. So it's important that, you know, when, you know, when the time comes, which is many times, perhaps most of the times, to know how to put politics aside and to be able to differentiate, to split the hairs and be able to find um, and extract the MS from the Sheker, to, you know, to know the right individuals that you can trust, in a, you know, trustworthy Rabbanim, perhaps, um, or mentors who can put you and could send you in the right direction so that you won't be fooled by a lot of the Sheker. You know, one of the really scary things about Parshas Korach, before we finish, I've heard of the story told in the name of a Rebbe. I don't remember which Rebbe it was, but the idea very simply was that this, this Rebbe, he was a, you know, he remembered his previous Gilgal, and he, um, he recalled the time of the rebellion, you know, between Korach Vadasa on the one hand and Moshe and Aaron on the other hand. And he spoke to his Talmudim about just how frightening it was. And really, in my opinion, this, this is really what makes Karach one of the most frightening partios. You know, we have the dramatic irony, uh, you can call it, of knowing. We have the benefit of knowing um, that Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron was right. We know it from hindsight, but even if not from hindsight, some things, you know, from the narrative perspective, it's very easy to tell that Karach was wrong and that Moshe Rabbeinu was right. Um, you know, knowing the ending of the story, knowing uh, how Moshe Rabbeinu was chosen at the burning bush, but we take for granted that this is this is all true. The people at the time did not know it was true. You know, no 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 one else saw Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush. No one at that time before Korach um, died, before the ground literally opened beneath him and sucked him up. No one knew. And the question is, how would they have possibly known? And it's, it's so frightening, considering the politics, considering how convincing Korach and his campaign were. And this Rebbe said it was a very frightening time, and it was not so clear. Stalmei asked him whose side he was on at the rebellion. And he said he honestly, at the time, was not sure, but he, he leaned towards Moshe Rabbeinu's side, and he ended up being on the right side of history. And uh, perhaps in his, you know, not just the right side of history, but the right side of destiny, ultimately, you know, Lola, you know, Lola Haba and the Olam Emes. But that's 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 really the the, the trick here, and 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 the, and what's so terrifying about how politics works. It's often the safest thing to be somewhere in the middle, but to try to keep yourself anchored and grounded in the Torah Hashkafa always.
because the MS is almost never clear. And you have to attach yourselves to your leaders, you know, to be able to say, listen, I don't know, but, you know, I'm leaning towards, you know, the, the, the Posik and Rav that, I, that I've known. And, you know, it, like, there's something to be said about that. To be able to not say, I for sure know better, but to Bidafka, be willing to admit that I don't know better. And so I'm trying to lean towards what I think is the safest thing. And, you know, to be able to, as much as we can, try to be intellectually honest and look for the MS, this is a, one of the ways that we can overcome um, the the facade of politics and propaganda that we see here in, in Torah and Tanakh at large, but also in real life all around us. Anyway, I think that takes us through this topic. So in the meantime, keep it real, keep talking, and most importantly, keep the Torah. Thank you for joining us here at The Database.